Welcome to Fred Buzz. My name is Joe McMurray. And I'm Aaron Sefchik. And today we have Paul Guetta is signing on from Asheville, North Carolina. Um, Paul is an electronic music producer and a Moog store manager. And we're really excited to have him here. Welcome, Paul. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. So I actually was down in Asheville for uh, Thanksgiving. My parents live close to there and... I had I saw the Moog factory and I was like, it's time for me to finally go in there. And I dragged my wife and my brother and uh, we went in there and I was like a kid in a candy shop. And um, you guys actually didn't have any tours going on and you generously offered to take me and my family behind the scenes and uh, got some time to talk to you. So thank cool. you again for that. Yeah, glad you made it. It's always a pleasure to have people who are excited to come by and to share that stuff with them. So, Yeah, so how did you end up working for Moog? Were you already very um, into synths beforehand and then you like you lived in Asheville and you sought them out? Um, yeah, so I was working for a company called Keith McMillan. Um mm-hmm. They make MIDI controllers okay. and are, I believe, now owned by Pearl or have some distribution with Pearl drums. Um, so I work for them as a sales rep and an educator. And uh, the Southeast was kind of my territory. So I'd hop in my car and I'd drive and visit all the music stores that carried our products. Um, I did that for about three years after already uh, being in music. Uh, production for quite some time. So overall, probably got about uh, 15 to 16 years of music production experience, Um, mostly making like hip hop beats, but also anything from like IDM to techno and other weird ambient stuff. Um, But as far as, as, go ahead. Did you say IDM? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm from Miami. Uh before Asheville. And uh, when I first got to Miami, this genre of music, IDM, uh, not to be confused with EDM, was incredibly popular amongst, you know, college kids and that kind of thing. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, So I didn't quite get to how I started working for Moog. So I was doing this freelance thing and I got a call one day from a friend of a friend and he's like hey i work in the store but i need somebody to replace me i'm going to go work in marketing so five interviews later here i am and um i've been at moog for about six years okay very cool yeah so did you when did robert moog pass away was it 2005 ish correct before your time uh i guess 14 years ago at this point oh yeah and does his, his family carry on the, the business? Um, we are employee-owned. We're 49% um, employee-owned. And uh, at one point, we may very well be 100%, but it is a process. We're an ESOP. It's a, an employee stock ownership program, and it takes a while to you know make a full transition, usually. Right. right. Um, as far as the family goes, his family is... Um, spread out across the world in, in a sense. Mm. Um, his daughter, Michelle, runs the Bob Moak Foundation, and they're awesome. They do uh, educational outreach and 
uh, go to schools and get involved with festivals and that kind of thing too. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. Wow. So you, you do a lot of electronic music production on your own. I've listened to your album, um, the golden changes from Panther God. Yeah. Um, when did you start doing Panther God? Was that your original name that you used for your DJ stuff or your production stuff? No. Um, I was going by PG 13. <laughs> so, you know, my, cool. <laughs> same initials, right? PG. Yeah. So yeah. Panther God. And, um, I was, I think it was my 28th birthday. Um, I had kind of an experience with the Panther, which I won't get into too much. Um, and it was actually a Jaguar, a Jaguar that I had this experience with because of course, most people think there are black Panthers. There are not, right. They don't exist. They're really dark modeled kind of brownish, uh, colored, um, or they're a Jaguar or a leopard or something like that. Right. So I had this experience and I started joking with my good friend at the time about the Jaguar Lord or Jaguar. It's hard to say that word. Uh, and he was like, no, it's, it's Panther God. That's your initials. And I was already looking for a new name because PG 13 sounds a little, a little sophomore-ish, you know? <laughs> so uh, I was named up here in the mountains at a festival while I was uh, playing music. So anyway, that's kind of the story of that. Mm-hmm. And it's been, I think it was 2010. So it's been about eight years. So you were playing at a music festival and you, were you up there like doing like a late night set where people are dancing to your stuff? Um, at the time I was a rapper. Okay. So I was um, producing music as PG 13, but also collaborating a lot with a good friend of mine named Kent. And, uh, I was the vocalist in a project called junk ops, which, um, you know, we had put a lot of effort into that project and, um, we got booked for a festival up here called trinumeral. So yeah, I guess people were dancing. (laughs) I mean, I imagine that like listening to your, I think it's the second track on your album, dream tone. You had, like I just imagined like late night in the woods with you know flashing colored lights and people dancing. It had that festival vibe to it. Cool. Glad you glad you felt that way. Um yeah, that record was a very uh laborious project. It was like a four year process uh or long process to make that yeah, record. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. a long that's a long time in the making. Yeah. What was what was your process and why did it take so long? Um, I probably made about a thousand sketches okay. in in um, that four years, and was working on a variety of different things, and also just trying to make a living as a freelance uh, DJ, musician, producer. I gave uh, Ableton lessons for a while. Um, and I was doing the Keith McMillan thing part-time, which involved a lot of travel. So, um, all that. And then I went through, I was engaged at the time and I went through a big breakup, which, um, meant relocating and finding new work. And so it was, uh, there was a lot going on, but at the end of it, I'm a pretty slow composer. Okay. I'm not a player. Um, so I'm not the guy that shreds. I'm the guy that 
plays something horribly, edits it, refines it, does 10 takes. Um, if that doesn't work, uh, get my MIDI cables out and I program mm-hmm. everything with MIDI. Yeah. Um, and then if that doesn't work, then the song, you know, might go through like six revisions. So I'm a pretty slow uh, producer. Having said that, I've made a, a new project, which is all about finishing things in like two to six hours. It's called, <laughs> it's called Paul Abdul. Oh. And okay. there are no synths. It's all sampled. And uh, <laughs> I just put a record out like three days ago under that moniker. And it took about a year to finish. It's like a 20-minute project. So, Okay. Is that the one yeah. that had like old samples of like old jazz tracks and you were putting yeah. behind them. Yeah. It's a lot of um, like Bill Evans and oh, uh, cool. jazz, jazz from that era that I chop up. So that was very cool to hear. Yeah. I Thanks. listened to that one as well. That was actually very, very good. I enjoyed Thanks. that. Well. Yeah. I'm actually way more stoked on doing stuff like that than the full synth um, based project. Okay. Um, so we'll see where Panther God goes. I've got some some sketches for sure for another Panther God record, but they take so long that we'll see, right. see how that goes. So this new one's Paul Abdul. Paul Abdul, impossible to Google. I <laughs> cannot Google or track the progress of this project almost at all. It's so hard to figure out how to do that. So Be, because of Paula Abdul, yes. Every every Google search goes to that. Yep. Yeah, your Google search engine optimization's got to be... It's like zero. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, it's well. a great name, but you may want to switch it up. I'm not. I'm sticking with it. Yeah, well, I guess it depends on what your, what your ultimate goals yeah. are for it. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I make a living doing, um, doing what I do here at Moog. And so the beauty of that is I don't have to rely upon my creativity to feed me, which I tried that for a while and I realized pretty quickly I wasn't going to go down that path. Yeah. Well, with these samples um, from in your Paul Abdul project, um, what is, do you run into issues with copyright using those old tracks? Yeah, so I had literally the biggest opportunity I've ever had in my musical career pop up where somebody from Adult Swim was like, hey, can we use some of this stuff? And I was like, sure, but it's all samples. Right. And they were like, oh, no, can't do anything with it. Dang. Yeah. Wah, so, wah. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> that's fine. So you, you're able to post to CD or to what was it, Bandcamp and things like that, SoundCloud, but you're not able to sell the music? Is that what it is? Um, I can sell it kind of, you know, let's say under the radar. Um, Mm. 50,000 copies or units is the number that I've heard. uh, You start to get in trouble if you cross that threshold of uh, sales. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're... For, you know, 10 years, you're, you know, building up your fan base. If you reach that 50,000 or more kind of uh, landmark, somebody might come after you for your entire catalog at that point. Um, so that's when you lawyer up, I guess. But um, anything under that, typically you're, 
for lack of a better word, flying under the radar when it comes to copyright holders actually coming at you and saying, uh, cease and desist or like, you owe us money, you need to clear these samples. Having said that, uh, sites like SoundCloud can often remove your material if it's copywritten. And there are sophisticated algorithms for finding it. Um, So, you know, long story short, there's only so much I can do with the music. I can sell it on Bandcamp. I can usually have it on SoundCloud. It's it's also on Spotify and iTunes. Um, and YouTube is pretty lenient. But when it comes to licensing and sync deals, I'm out of – it's out of question. Right. Well, we enjoyed your project. Thank you. And hopefully uh, any of our Fred Buzz listeners can go and check you out at Paul Abdul. Is it Paul or Paula Abdul? No, 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 Paul. Paul. Paul, Paul yeah. Abdul. Okay. Yeah. Paula wouldn't make Paul. any sense. <laughs> I definitely it's... don't own that name. <laughs> no. My goodness gracious. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I'm on Bandcamp. That's the easiest way to, to find it. And no synths. You know, actually, I did try to put some synth, synth lines in there, but I tried to keep it pure, whereas the other projects are very, very synth-oriented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can we can we jump over to that track Jehovah for a minute? Yeah. I want to talk about the sounds that I was hearing. Yeah. Um cuz you've got some if if our listeners listen to the track, um it's got these swells, synth swells in the background or not I mean they're not that far in the back, but Yeah. There's that and then there's a totally different kind of the lead synth which I don't know if that's a uh, square wave or what that was, but sine wave, but it's got kind of a farty sound to it. Okay. Good farty. But you know what I'm talking about, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, so it's like we, a really fat lead synth sound. Are we talking about the, the first song on the record? Second song, the Dreamatone. Dreamatone, yes. Okay, so most all of that that particular recording is Juno 60. Juno 60, okay. Yeah, it's a synth from early 80s. It's considered analog, um, and Roland made it. And it's actually a really sought-after synth. Um, For good reason, a lot of them are breaking down. Um, So a friend of mine that I was staying with at the time had one, and he's like, I'm going to sell this thing, so if you want to use it, now's your now's your chance. So I pretty much did overdubs to layer all of what you hear there. Um, the baseline, which is more, I think, um, there's like a lead bass sound and that, that was actually a soft synth. Um, and it was of an SH 101, which is another Roland kind of classic eighties. Okay. Yeah. And what, what did you use to create those, uh, swells? The kind of synth chord swells. Yeah, it was <clears throat> it was all layered, um, layered Juno. So it was like a pretty limited palette in terms of the different um, different synths I used. Sometimes I might use like four or five different um, instruments, but this was pretty much all Juno six sixty, I believe. Um, oh. Yeah, and then a lot of uh, what I guess you could call post-production. Uh, I did have a guest, uh, a guest help me with the mix 
down of it. And when I say mixed down, I more mean like um, some of the effects and edits and stutters, um, sound effects, that kind of thing. And he passed away shortly after he made that. So I definitely have to call him out. Uh, a good buddy of mine, he went by Deflon. Uh, his name's Derek. And he and I had a project together. So we were collaborating a lot at the time. And he was always great at giving things that final push, that final edge and polish, which, you know, when you from start to finish, you're composing, you're mixing, you're editing. It's nice to have another ear, another perspective. And I find that things come out a little bit better when I do that. So, yeah, yeah Aaron, Aaron does a lot of uh, a lot of studio stuff. He gets loves the mixing process. Yes. Yeah, I, I very much enjoy that whole process. Exactly, <laughs> what, exactly what you're talking about. You yeah, know, taking a piece and putting the final touches on it, whether it's putting certain effects on it or just polishing it up or whatever it is. It's I, I, I definitely understand that and enjoy that process. Yeah, that one, uh, it took a little bit longer for me too because there's a, a full modulation that happens. Mm-hmm. So there's a section in the song, it's somewhat... Um, it's not that noticeable and that was the goal but it goes from i think d minor to to g or a or something um so there's a full modulation um tonality wise and uh and then what i did is i had derek put everything through the another sampler and he basically replayed and re-triggered everything oh so there was a lot of process involved in that song and and it was a good example of why things took so long on that record right so you that chord that song like a lot of it is based around that d minor chord for a lot of the song yeah and it's it's just kind of holding on that chord right but you're doing cool things there's there's a progression um and then the progression um the whole thing modulates but i think i keep the same progression Hmm. so yeah um the name Golden Changes is a reference to John Coltrane, uh, oh. the Coltrane Changes. Mm-hmm. And I am by no means a master jazz musician, um, but the goal was to imbue more harmonic complexity in that record. Um, I really started out not knowing much about theory or piano, and looking back on my earliest works, that was what was lacking. So, you know, a lot of time went into having actual chord progressions yeah in that record so how <clears throat> in terms of your compositions and progressions and, and key changes how do you go about doing that now versus when yeah. you were younger um i feel like to be really frank i've gotten a little lazy um i continue to learn more and more uh i'd say complex chords and that kind of thing uh, as I get older. But looking back, there were certain things that I was doing where I'm like, yeah, I need to bring that that back into. Uh, and part of it was when you don't know what you're doing, mm-hmm. you can start, you do some cool things uh, a little bit, you know? I agree. Yeah. So how do I do it now? I usually write, I write things on paper and I figure out what chords I'm going to use before I even make sounds. Okay. Uh, that's usually like the best case scenario for me. Right. Like a bare bones map type of thing. Yeah. I make like a little harmony map kind of mm. thing. 
I figure out, um, you know, am I going to go with uh, some more out there chords or do I want this to sound uh, a little more standard? And then I actually just write down the chords and I write down all the notes in the chords. And then if I want to modulate, I'll figure that out ahead of time too. Okay. All right. Yeah. Cool. So you're sta- you're taking like diatonic chords of say C major and then you're, you're picking the chord progression out on paper without, you don't even have a keyboard in front of you while you're doing that? Not usually and not usually diatonic either. I feel like what's, uh, somewhat plaguing this whole EDM thing is it's a lot of the same chords that you hear. So like, I'm always trying to figure out, well, how do I not do that? And then that for me often means more like a, of a jazz approach. And, um, the newest music I'm working on is certainly, um, more modal where each chord will have its own, um, its own scale. Mm Mm-hmm. And even if I'm just like two chords or three chords, um, that gives it a little bit more interesting flavor, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. With all the, the synths, I feel like, I mean, a lot of the the EDM music that's out there, they have, it's like when you actually look at the chord progression, it's it's not any different from like Wagon Wheel by, you know, Ulker Medicine Show. It's like yeah. four chords, you know, one... One five six four. Yeah, something like that. It's like that over and over, and then they have some sort of synth lead line over it, and yeah. put like a a, a dance groove uh, line behind, you know, the percussion or the drums, and people yeah. love it. People eat it up. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, and you know, um, <laughs> I wish I could in my head juggle all the math that goes uh, goes behind, like you know, more complex jazz. And for me, I just have to write it down because I have trouble even following progressions. You know, I'm just, I I didn't start out playing music. I started off sampling and that kind of thing. So I kind of have to come at it from the back door and like really jot everything down on paper the old school way and, and make charts kind of, you know. I think everybody has to go through that. Yeah. Like everybody. I've, I have students that, they're like, how do you know all this stuff? I'm like, well, I've done it thousands of times at this mm. point. Like, yeah. you're not my first student. I did it thousands of times before I even started explaining this to kids. Mm. And now I explain it to kids and, and adults almost every day of my yeah. life. Like, it's, yeah. that's the, it just gets more and more clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. At first, you know, I noticed, I was like, wow, I know what chords are, but everything sounds very vanilla. And it that, that took like a couple years to resolve just that. Well, why is my music sound so ridiculously uh, like classical? You know, like I've heard this in a million Beethoven, you know, type compositions. Your typical just like one, four, five, or whatever, and everything's just like three note triads. It's just it doesn't fly. Yeah, you know. Oh man, I when you start adding, I always talk about with with my students, like uh, a chord is like a cookie is what I usually use and yeah. explain that a chord's you know a cookie's made of several ingredients like flour, <laughs> sugar, and butter, for instance. I mean, there's other things, but a chord is made of a root, a third, and a fifth, and yeah. then 
you know, maybe that's a sugar cookie, but maybe you want a chocolate chip cookie. Let's add a seven. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like maybe you want chocolate <laughs> macadamia nut. Maybe let's add a ninth on there. Yeah. 13th in it. It helps them to understand that it's okay. Which one's the chocolate chip cookie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not that once you, once you kind of get it, it's uh, it helps clear it up to people to think of it like a recipe. Yeah, and uh, man, and with in my, I'm not super experienced with synths. Um, the only I think analog synths I've ever used have been at the Moog factory with you, mm. but. But I've dabbled using synths on Ableton and using the using some sort of chord synth and adding, you know, playing a nice minor ninth chord and like slowly adding pitches on top, a sharp eleven, whatever it is, gives the it's amazing what you can do with the synths because they have so much so much of a swell and the sustain and um but it it's sometimes inspires me using something like that, adding it to my music as a guitarist, it, it helps me to create something new. And that's part of what I thought would be really cool about having you on. You know, we we're called fret buzz, the podcast because both Aaron and I are guitarists primarily, but I think that everybody stands to benefit just exploring synths and what it could add to your music. I mean, it's good to explore other instruments in general, but I think yeah. that, if you're in a lull, songwriting lull, just take some sort of cool synth pad, you know, something that sounds like spacey and cool and put it down and play over it for a little bit. Like maybe it, you'll create something new. Yeah. That's what happened to me with one of my, one of my tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It's, it's good for inspiration. That's for sure. I know. I mean, with, with guitarists, we have our pedals, we have our boards and all, all this rack gear that we can play with. And it's fun to kind of get into, but at the same time with synths, it's the same kind of thing. I know whenever I pull up uh, something in pro tools, one of their synths, um, I can get lost for hours and just kind of pushing buttons and twisting knobs and getting into all kinds of crazy sounds. I think for a lot of us who are not familiar with, synths and what they can do uh yeah obviously it can be overwhelming because there's so much you can do yeah um I, and i even had a producer came up to, uh, who actually contacted me recently was like can you give me any help in this area um because it's really confusing i'm trying to get this one sound i'm trying to get like silky smooth string sounds um out of the synth and i'm i was just like i don't I, I'm not a I'm not an expert in synths in any way whatsoever, but I don't think that you're realizing what the tools that you're trying to use. It's almost like trying to put a you know the the square peg in a round hole. Yeah, I, I don't think he was he had this vision in his mind, and I don't think he was going at it in the right way. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, so, can you uh, achieve that kind of sound? Sure, I'm not sure he was going about it in the right way. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think when you have a certain sound or something like that with a synth, it's going to take some time to sit down and familiarize yourself with specifically that that synth because each one is, is different in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's a a really good point, and it's interesting because I I feel like I kind of deal with similar things every day, like two common things I get. Uh, one would be I'm a guitarist 
and I want to make my guitar sound like a synthesizer. And um, okay. there's, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of people that come in that think they can plug their guitar into a synthesizer <laughs> and just play it. Sorry, right? <laughs> right. Which, I actually had somebody tell me that last week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that's pretty common. Yeah. Um, and usually, I, I actually end up steering them towards guitar pedals. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because getting a, a really nice MIDI kit put on your guitar right. and figuring out MIDI if you're at this point, maybe it's not the best idea, right? Right. They do make guitar synths and those are cool too. Um, there's an artist square pusher who's known as a bassist who makes electronic music all via MIDI with, uh, you know, a MIDI pickup on his bass. So right. you can do those things. Um, and then the other thing you mentioned, which I found interesting is about the, I had this sound in my head, I need to get it. So I figure a synthesizer is the best way to get it. Right. Right. Um, I find that if you want the sound of a piano or a guitar, um, or any other acoustic instrument, you probably want that exact sound. Right. You probably don't want a synthesizer to do something similar. Um, and that's actually interesting too, because in the seventies or even in the sixties, when the Beatles and the monkeys and all these uh, rock bands were getting into synths, what they were doing is they would go, Oh, we could get kind of a tuba sound or a flute sound. And instead of getting, let's say um, an entire horn section, mm-hmm. let's do it with a synth. So they'd fly somebody in and the guy would patch up this giant modular synth that costs like $60,000. And they'd spend hours trying to get something that replicated an acoustic instrument. Right. But then pretty quickly, people realize, you know what? We can get a totally new sound with the synth. So let's start using that. And I think that's more where things went is instead of trying to get, you know, a spot-on replicant, like replication of like a horn, uh, we can get a synth horn or a synth something, and let's use the sound of a synthesizer as one tool of many in our palette. Right. And so I, I like synths for that reason. Like, I think electric piano has its place. I love electric piano. I'm not typically using a synthesizer to get that sound. Right. With a synth, you can, it has a very unique sound. And because it has, you know, so many filters and whatnot like that, you can sweep through the filters and give it that unique sound. Um, yeah. That's what makes the synth. Versus, yeah. Versus trying to make a synth sound like, you know, uh, like you said, a tube or a, or a string section. Right. Download that sample and, and do that. <laughs> yeah. There's contact and, you know, all these yep. great sample libraries that are pretty accessible nowadays. Yeah. Um, you know, interesting thing that that you said about the filter too, is if you were to run a tuba through uh, a a really creamy filter, like a Moog filter, the tuba, you would now start to perceive more like a synth. Hmm. So it's in the filtering and the way you remove frequencies and the way that you can move that filter that is often the most defining aspect of a synthesizer. 
there. Not the sound source, not right. the oscillators, right. which just go, ah. Um, because a tuba, you don't have that option to go, wow, 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 right. and have a resonant filter feeding back on your acoustic instrument. So if you want an acoustic instrument to sound more like a synth, maybe you just need a filter. Right. Yeah. So if you're using, like on your on a Moog synthesizer, it's got like 40 little knobs in yeah. stacks. Is that the, you're talking about the LFO filter? Is that, are there different it, It'd be a types? low-pass low filter. Low-pass filter. Um, that is most common on really all synthesizers. It's going to allow the lows to pass through the cutoff point. So that's your threshold. Mm-hmm. And if you have it set to like, I don't know, 40 hertz, you only hear the frequencies below that. And if you don't have a sub, you don't hear anything. Right. Um, so low pass filter, it's like the naming of it is so straightforward. It's easy to go. What is a low pass filter, but it just allows the lows to pass through a certain, but you're, you're oscillating that. So it's like coming in pulses. Oh, right. So if you use an LFO and you route it to the filter, you get that kind of wobble Okay. or that movement. So the whoa kind of thing. Yeah, it's like major EDM sound in my head. Very common, yeah. <laughs> okay. And so also on the Moog filter, or the Moog, and a lot of the other synths, I guess, you've got, yeah. you can do a, a square wave, a sawtooth lead and all these things. Yeah. Um. So that it's actually distorting the electrical signal and giving you that, like if you were to look at some sort of scientific equipment is the sound wave is actually distorted in that way on an oscilloscope yeah yeah if you look at an oscilloscope um an analog oscillator versus a digital an analog oscillator can produce a variety of vibrations okay sound is vibration tubas and say saxophones uh let's let's start with saxophone the saxophone is going to produce a really buzzy rich bright harmonically rich waveform, um, acoustically, right? <clears throat> An oscillator can produce a similar waveform called a sawtooth, and it looks like the jagged edge of a saw. That's as bright and buzzy as it gets, right? Uh-huh. From there, you've got sawtooths, you've got square waves, you've got um, triangles. Triangles would be your smoothest waveform. More useful for flute, electric piano, these kinds of things. <clears throat> so depending on what kind of a sound you want, do you want really bright, aggressive, in your face, go towards a saw? Do you want really mellow? Do you want a sub bass with no harmonic content other than that main fundamental? You go for a triangle, right? And the oscillator produces that, that tone. You typically have a couple and you can stack them. So now you get something that might be like a mix of a a saw and a square. And you get even more of a rich, wide, thick sound. You also get some chorusing now. It's like two voices singing together, right? You Um, have to have two different outputs on your your synthesizer for that? No. So like built internally into the synthesizer maybe? Most synthesizers 
that Moog makes are monophonic and they're single voice. So all of the components, they all work together to give you one signal path that is going to sound as thick and rich as possible. So your multiple oscillators go through one mixer section, one filter, one amplifier. Now, when it gets to a polysynth, let's just take the Korg Minilog, which is a like $500 small little uh, kind of a desktop uh, polysynth. It, you can play four notes. There are four signal paths under the hood. So you might have two oscillators per voice. You might have eight oscillators. I don't know what the number is on that. Um, but each one has its own filter in theory. Each one has its own amplifier. And you get a complete signal path for every note you want to play at the same time. That's why polysynths are expensive in the analog world. Uh, they're typically big and bulky. It's because you've got every part on the circuit board. Multiply it by the number of notes you want to play at the same time. And that's like the new Moog 1 that just came out? Yeah, it's 16 voice. You have okay. four, 48 oscillators. So you have uh, three oscillators per voice, four LFOs, and the whole signal path um, times 16, right? So, yeah. Giant circuit board in the back. 20, uh, see, 20 circuit boards. 20 circuit boards, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. It, that might be the most complex uh, synth of its kind, though, so. So 16 voices, a lot of voices. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've only got 10 fingers. Yeah, I get well, a friend coming. <laughs> yeah. At first, it's like, why do I need 16? Well, it's a, it's a three-part synth, so it's broken up into layers. You could have, like, you play, let's say, 10 keys, but then you have a sound come up after that first sound, like a string section. Well, wow. there, go, there goes all your voices right there. That makes sense. Yeah. Wow. So a big thing I've been like doing some research into these and into these different synths and like Moog seems to be all analog, but there are also all these digital synths. And I imagine it's a lot like, you know, we have this, we had this conversation. We had a guy who does, he works on amps and things like tube amp versus solid state amp. I'm sure people have opinions about an analog synth versus a digital synth. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, they are just different tools. And the, the whole conversation is a bit of a moot point in that if you need certain sounds, it's very hard to do that on one or the other tool. So if you needed a glassy pad, um, you probably want a digital synth for that, especially if you want to play 10 notes at the same time. Um, if you want the thickest, richest, lushest, warmest bass tone you can get, um, and you want it to sound like something you heard off an Emerson, Lake and Palmer record, you probably want a Moog for that. Um, so digital's really good for certain things. Analog's great for certain things. They both have limitations. Where it gets into a conversation about what is better is like um, it, it gets down to kind of like what makes us human. 
an analog synth is more like a living, breathing organism. You never get the same, same sound twice. At a fundamental level, if you strike a key on a Moog 50 times, you get 50 different events. In theory, on a digital synthesizer, if you hit that key 50 times, you get the exact same event 50 times. Now, why would I want it to be different every time? Well, if you play a piano, you strike a key on a piano, hammer hits a string, you've got heat, friction, gravity, and everything else going on in the physical world affecting that sound. So you strike the key 50 times, you get unique events every time. And same with playing a guitar, you can't replicate the same sound. So that's where it gets into this more heady discussion about analog versus digital. Does Do you think in general analog, I mean, I guess you said it's a richer, thicker sound, but can you get a digital synth and still get a good fat tone? Oh, yeah. In fact, um, if you need precision, if you need that bass to sound very, very specific way, every note, every time you, you strike the key, you might even want a, a digital synth for that. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting. Most analog synths are hybrids. Most all of them starting in the 80s. So they use the best of both worlds. And that's just, that's the norm. So when people get into the whole analog versus digital thing, um, they may not even realize that most of their analog synths are also hybrids. There's digital architecture in there too. I did not know that. Yeah. So if, um, memory. So if you want to store a patch, if you need MIDI, if you um, need more precise LFOs that can be synced to your computer's tempo, things like that, they're all digital. So if you were going to, like, if I wanted to get an actual synth or get, like, get more into it, yeah, is it better to just, like, get something on the computer and start messing with it that way? Is it better to get a digital synth and learn on that is there specific models that might be good for a person trying to get like i want to beef up my tracks i'm still a guitarist but i want to have some texture underneath my tracks and maybe like maybe my i want to experiment with putting some lead lines or bass lines with the synth but like where's a good place to start yeah well there are certainly more affordable options than ever um, it used to be, you know, in the sixties, you'd have, you'd have one option, right? You'd have a, you had modes, right? <clears throat> in the seventies, then you had ARP and Moog, ARP. And then, uh, uh, you know, you saw Roland and Korg, um, and other companies enter the, the mix. Well, now you're talking about hundreds of companies making great synthesizers. Right. So it's really competitive and there are so many options that, it's almost like there's no wrong way to get started. Now, I will say this. Using a mouse to program a synthesizer, it's really hard to learn what is going on hmm. because you're only able to adjust one parameter at a time. You're typically starting with presets. 
um, you might not ever know what it is that knob actually does. You might be listening and intuitively kind of, oh, that does this. When you get a hardware synthesizer with a limited number of options, Mm -hmm. you tend to learn how that thing works. And so I'd say any analog synthesizer is a really good place to start. Um, we make one called the Verkstatt. It's a little kit. It sounds unbelievable. Uh, it's $200. Um, having said that, that Minilog I mentioned is a good polyphonic analog synth. It's like 500. Um, and so stuff like that just wasn't available even like, you know, a decade ago at that, at that price point. So those are great. I'll also mention these little pocket operators by Teenage Engineering. This one is the Tonic. This thing sounds as good as an 808. It'll cost you $90. You fit it in your pocket. Um, cool. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> there's certainly no shortage of tools. Um, yeah. And of course, when it comes to synths, you're also you've also got drum drum synthesizers. So right. this is kind of a a drum synth sampler. Because um, the 808 is like a drum kit on Ableton that I pull up. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what it, that's what that refers to. Um. Only well, the drum samples. It, it, you, we're talking about the the TR 808, which yeah. was an actual drum machine that. <laughs> You know, there was like a 909 and an 808, and they're both just legendary drum machines that go for crazy money if you can find a vintage one. Um, But, yeah, you're right. You can get the actual sounds everywhere. I mean, you could download them in the next 10 minutes onto your computer. 808 came out of the 80s. You know, people like Run DMC and whatnot like that made it really popular. Yeah, and then the 909 became really popular for house. So yeah. that like uh, t- t- that kind of like hi-hat, that open hi-hat, yep. you almost can't hear a house track without those those hats. That's like the thing that really gives it that like 90s house sound or 80s house sound, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's cool. You talking about hardware and your hand, I liken that to a lot of the uh, compressors and limiters and, all the yeah. rack gear that we have as, as um, engineers. Yeah, you can do plugins, but it's the same thing. You know, <laughs> you grab a mouse and you kind of turn knobs and versus actually getting your hands on something. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a different, it's a different experience when you can actually, you know, play with a draw bar or, you know, kind of actually feel exactly what's going on within the, the, the hardware when you're touching a knob or flipping a switch or you actually get to hear it uh, versus like using a, like I said, using a mouse or even a MIDI controller where you do have multiple knobs and you can kind of manipulate them. It's just not the same thing. Yeah. The more fun you're having, I think the more inclined you are to, to dig in and to keep, keep at it. I agree. But finding the right tool, that's going to be an individual uh, journey. In fact, when I started, I started with an MPC. So no synthesizers, uh, no drum machines. I had CDs, and I would actually be sampling from CDs right right under the MPC. And then my next uh, gear was um, 
I think I bought a little Roland SP505, which had some like an 808 or a 909, kind of those sounds in there. Yeah. Uh, and I could sample into that and it had effects. So having like reverb, delay now, those things really helped. Um, and then eventually I got a synth and I got a record player. And for a while that was, that was it. That was like your classic hip hop studio setup. Right. And I do recommend starting with the sampler even. Um, it's not a synthesizer. It can't produce say its own tones, but the world is kind of your oyster when any sound can become the tone for your, you know, baseline or your, uh, your lead or whatever you want. Right. How, do, how does that work, a sampler? I've never used a sampler. Um, you typically have some sort of pads or triggers on a, on a bit of, if it's a hardware sampler. And um, very commonly, you've only got, like, say, from two seconds to, like, a couple minutes of sampling time. And you can edit the sound so that when you trigger it on the pad, it starts where you want it, it ends when you want it to. You can filter it and time stretch it quite often. Um, think of it as like a really stripped down um, drum rack in Ableton. Like an MPC um, was basically like the precursor to your kind of drum racks in Ableton, where you have these pads that you can you can re-trigger and you can throw any sound you want into those cells. How do you get like a, in a hardware sampler? How do you get like a kick drum sound? in there is it already in there can you pull from like a cd or like an mp3 the the track like the sound of the kick drum um so when i first started you know i would just find that part on that that album on on a cd at first and then it was you know vinyl and tapes and i just kind of cue it up um hit record on the sampler grab that kick but i'm also probably getting a bunch of other stuff i don't want so then i trim it um, so that it's nice and tight and hit, hit delete on all the other stuff and, uh, continue that process. Then of course you're sampling from different records cause you might get a kick from one record, a hi-hat from another and a snare from a completely different record. So then you have to do some tuning and, and filtering to get the three to sound like a kit. And it's just a really good process to go through because you learn about envelopes Uh, You learn about filtering um, and trimming and editing. So I think a sampler is a good place to start too. Sweet. Let's go back to this kick drum thing. You've got (laughs) like, I mean, a kick drum, you've got like a fraction of a second and you've recorded that one little bit. Are you then using an EQ to take out all the other stuff? And you've got like, if a kick drums it, 50 to 100 hertz somewhere in there you're like literally filtering out everything above 100 hertz and below 50 in order to just get the sound of that kick drum from that half a second sample um so what i would be looking for and this is going to give you maybe a, a new respect for what people do with sampling so in the very earliest stages right um of like with sp12 uh sp1200 right let's talk about this for a second One of the early kind of classic hip-hop samplers that you hear, Pete Rock, he used it a ton, DJ Premier, I think, as well. So golden era, early boom bap. I think it had two seconds of sampling time. Okay. So your kick, your hat, your snare, your samples, everything 
total had to add up to no more than two seconds. So that's a pretty big challenge, right? And what you'd be looking for is on that funk record or that soul record, the break, right? And you try to get maybe a loop, maybe like a one second, one bar loop, or you'd literally get just the kick and you'd hope it was isolated so that you didn't have the bass underneath it. Maybe you did, maybe you used it. Then you'd proceed and you'd find like five or six records that might work together, or maybe it's just one or two, right? But you chop them all up so that you just have the kick. Did you have any filters on an SP-1200? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe a low pass, but you certainly, you probably couldn't high pass. You probably couldn't cut the, the rumble out from the record. But yeah, point being is that's like the beginnings. You had very little tools. And then with, with time, the MPC became the norm. Now the MPC just had a low pass filter. So you could trim the sample. You could, uh, I think you could reverse it. You could time stretch it. But to time stretch one sound would take like a minute. You'd hit go and then you'd like, you know, clean your room and you'd come back and it might be time stretched. Well, if it's not time stretched the way you want it, you'd, you'd do it again. Um, so more than anything, you would be chopping things into parts to get it all to lock into the groove. And it meant you spent like, I used to, my process used to be sample records for the entire day, chop them at the end of the day. And then at night, make one beat. I can do all that in like, I can make an entire song in two hours now with a similar process, but yeah, it was just really slow and, and time, time consuming. So, so why would you do that now? If you can, if I can go on Ableton and pull up, like it came with like a hundred different drum racks including the 808 and the 909 and all that. Why would I not just use that? Most people would not do it the old, old fashioned way anymore. (laughs) If, if they are, they're looking for a particular sound. And I will say that it is a very, um, a very specific process to try to get your computer to sound like those old samplers. Because what I didn't realize when I first made the switch to Logic was Logic doesn't have necessarily a sound. You have to put those compressors in there. You have to find, you know, maybe a vintage tube amp simulator. Because MPCs have this hardware base and you have a lot of analog electronics in there that give it a sound, which is punchy and warm and fat. When I switched to Logic, it took me at least two years to make anything but complete garbage. I was like, everything sounded brittle, high, yeah, sterile. Yeah, I didn't know about reverb really. I didn't know about compression. So it was it was a process to recreate that sound. And I really, to be honest, I say it's taken me a decade to learn how to get that sound. So maybe yeah. I maybe I should have stuck with the sampler, you know. Well, I mean, I I, I I I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, you're that much better at creating the vision 
uh, at a quicker process. Yeah. You, know, you, yeah. you, you don't necessarily have to rely on libraries or anything like that. If you have a specific sound that you want, you can go after that and pretty quickly yeah. too. And yeah. that's why you're also an educator because <laughs> you, know, you can, you can yeah. kind of, you know, help people along with that process and show them the ins and outs of how to go about that versus, yeah. you know, well, here's a preset and I guess here we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, um, that's an interesting discussion too, because, um, going back to your, your kind of first point there about why would I, or question, why would I do that thing this way today? You wouldn't necessarily, but you're, if you have that experience, under your belt, you're so much better off, I think, because like, let's say Ableton, if that's your first tool, it's literally like having a $30 million studio at your fingertips with infinite routing capabilities, mm. sounds preloaded, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you're, you're gonna, it's going to take some time to figure out your sound and how to imprint a particular sound onto your recordings, onto your, your compositions. So that's why I tell people, even though they never, they never listen, they never really go, Oh yeah, I'm going to get a <laughs> sampler from the eighties that only has 10 seconds, you know, a sampling time. And I'll just start from scratch. Most right. people want instant results, you know? So yeah, especially yeah. nowadays. They want the thing and they want it now, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> For you, Paul, and absolutely, uh, actually Joe as well, and actually all of our listeners, there is a wonderful podcast called 20,000 Hertz. I've probably mentioned it before in the show. Um, but they had a episode at the beginning of December called Boots and Cats. Mm. And it's all about the 808 and the sounds that hip hop had and um all the classic you know since it was an excellent episode it just kind of reminded me and awesome yeah it's a very good episode yeah that 808 has really stuck around i mean oh, oh my gosh yes it's, yeah. it's funny how you have like an entire genre of music that'll sprout out of um a bit of hardware mm. like we talked about edm really let's just say it dubstep with yep. the lfo to the filter right um, so you couldn't really do that until you had digital LFOs and then a good way to change the rate of the LFO. Cause you could easily turn a mod wheel up on a mini Moog and go, whoa, 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 whoa. But if you wanted it locked into a grid, you needed like a computer. Right. Right. Okay. So there's dubstep. And then, um, with like the 808 people started, doing more than the 808 could with those same sounds, they'd sample the kick. You know, it, it was actually, this is kind of weird. It's actually out of the box, out of the hardware, not tuned to a note. It's between G and G sharp, I believe. So it's at a key with everything pretty much. Right. right, right. Well, so what people didn't care at first, then um, with the more modern trap sound, a lot of times there's no bass line. The bass is the kick and they tune the kick and they overdrive the kick. So it goes doom, 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 doom. And that sound, you know, you hear it in pop music every day. Um, it's, it's the, 
it's the sound of pop music really yeah. right now. Yeah. It's so funny. I've heard that so many times and I didn't realize what was happening. I don't know if I thought they were like cu- coupling the bass and the, and the kick together, just playing them at the same time. And I realized it was just the kick being tuned. I, I don't know this, the exact way that they made that kick at the beginning for that sampler. But I do know that you can get an 808 where what you do is you you use a filter on a synthesizer, you turn down your sound sources, and there's a feedback knob labeled resonance on the filter. So you turn the feedback all the way up. It's like holding a mic up to a speaker. Now you've got a feedback loop. Right. And you use the filter cutoff and you tune it, let's say to 40 hertz, some bass note, right? You can tune it very precisely. Then you strike a key and it goes, doom, doom, doom. You put that through like overdrive or saturators and you've got an 808. So (laughs) it may be that a filter, you know, once again is responsible for the sound of that kick. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. There's so many ways you can manipulate sound. It's so cool. Yeah. The different colors you can come up with. Yeah. Oh, and with plugins now. Oh my gosh. It's, I mean, I'm a big fan of universal audio plugins. Yep. Um, I've got an Apollo. That was a game changer for me. Yep. They sound great. They're affordable ish Mm -hmm. and the plugins sound better than great. I think they sound just unbelievable. Yeah. Apollos are the twins. Great, great things to have. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's your digital audio interface, correct? Yeah. It's uh, analog modeling that they do for the plugins. And the hardware actually has um, computer chips in it that run run their plugins. Right. So you don't need a super fast computer to have high-end plugins running. Hmm. So, like, I've got this Focusrite Scarlet. Yeah. So just with the Apollo Twin, you're going to get you can adjust the sound that's coming in to your computer before it even gets there to make it sound better. Is that kind of the idea? Um, so interesting. You can, um, you can have plugins for monitoring purposes that will not be actually printed to audio. So okay. like, let's say you want to sing through compression and reverb or rap through it or whatever. You can do that without making a, a you know, an unchangeable decision or like uh, it's not going to be printed to audio, right? Yeah, because I hate singing. Like if I'm singing a take, I need reverb on it. Yeah. It feels terrible to sing without reverb. Right. Um, so you have that option. And um, they have a whole library of plugins that do that are like very precisely modeled after famous hardware. So like lexicon reverbs, uh, you know, vintage uh, limiters, UA11, whatever, ever's like all those consoles, everything's been meticulously um, modeled so that it sounds like analog hardware, very close to it. Basically. They even have like uh, modeling that can happen. So I think, I think within the plugin, if you change the type, on let's say a, a, a tube amp or something, uh, the circuitry is re like the signal path gets rerouted in the hardware. 
So you actually get modeling of like different amps and that kind of thing in the most precise way possible. So it, it's really cool stuff. And that is where we're going to leave it today. Join us next Thursday as we get into part two and dive a little bit deeper into the synth. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Join our Facebook group and stop over at fretbuzzthepodcast.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe. If you want to take the first step in helping us out, go on over to iTunes and give us a review and let others know what you think about the show. As always, thank you for listening. We do appreciate it. And we'll catch you next week on Fret Buzz, the podcast. 